So my name is Sherry Oxendale. I'm the pastor of discipleship and care here at First United Methodist. And in just a moment, you're going to watch a short clip that was a clip, a videotape take, taken about a decade ago. You will recognize at least the setting and some of you will recognize some of the people in it. And some of you may notice the actual uh, quality of the clip. It's really bad. And I can say that because I'm the one who took the video clip. So, so well, um, you'll notice that it zooms in and out, in and out. I mean, I guess I must have thought that was a fun thing to do. And you'll see a few backs of heads and that's okay. It's less than a minute. So while you're watching it, I'd like you to, to just be aware of your thoughts. Um, there are going to be some follow-up questions. So we'll let you watch this video. So it was short. I limited it to less than a minute for you. Now I have three questions for you. First of all, think about what stood out most to you. Was it the music? Was it the changes in the decor? Perhaps the lighting? Those changes were made right here in this very room. Was it the production quality of the clip? <laughs> Maybe it was something else, but whatever it is, just keep that in mind. Second question, what person made the biggest impression on you. So I'll review. We opened with Pastor Raymond and Martha Butts. So if you don't know Raymond or Martha, you may have recognized Raymond's um, name or picture. Um, last week on All Saints Day, he passed away this past year in July. Um, that couple had been married 60 years. He served as a United Methodist pastor for 45 years, but then when he retired, they came here and served. Uh, Martha worked as a secretary in the state government and she loved singing in the choir and she served in probably just about every capacity that you could in multiple churches. Next, you, um, she passed away in 2014. Next, you saw Pastor Fred Least, um, who after 43 years of full-time service in ministry, retired this past July. Next was Andrew Wormelskirchen, the man with big hair, um, playing a guitar. Andrew, or Worm, as we knew him, grew up in our church and was a youth director. He now teaches Hebrew in a school in Dallas, Texas. Um, then we see a, a profile of my son, the underage people. I could give permission back then, so. Um, <laughs> um, he's now working in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Last, week, last year, he called me on speakerphone for his friend's giving, and he said, hey mom, will you pray over our meal? It's something that he will forever regret because I said, hey, Sam, why don't you just sing this childhood prayer that we used to sing around the table and all of his friends go, yeah, Sam, sing it for us. <laughs> Sam hung up on me. <laughs> so 
Um, lastly, we saw um, our daughter Sophie and her friend Amaya Ambrosio. So um, maybe some of you know the Ambrosios. They worship in this service. Kevin and um, Joe both play sometimes. Um, both young ladies are in college and both of them belong to um, small group Bible studies. Their faith is with them. There were also some people in the background, maybe you noticed then. So anyway, keep that person or, or group of people that you thought about when you watched the clip initially. Keep that in mind because the third question relates to those two things. So the third question is, what type of thoughts did you have? So we're going to go behind the thought. So in reference to the first question, what stood out to you most? So I want you to examine what thoughts you had behind this. Whatever it was, did it stand out to you because of your curiosity? Like, oh, what was this place like a decade ago? What did this room look like? Maybe it stood out to you in terms of comparison. If so, was the comparison positive and non-judgmental? Such as, oh, the pastor used a pulpit 10 years ago. She doesn't today. Maybe it was, oh, look at the green plants that decorated the, lo- the stage area 10 years ago. Oh, you know what? Today we have this amazing lighting system. Or maybe, just maybe it was a little competitive and judgmental comparing what was then and what is now. Maybe the voice in your head said something like, boy, that videotape done way back then was so bad. My 10-year-old could do a better videotape than that. If nothing else, she should have at least edited it. The truth of the matter is, I did edit it. It was worse before I that. <laughs> well, I hope you didn't get nauseous with the zooming in and out. With reference to the second question, what person made the biggest impression on you? So think about the why behind the impression. Did a particular person stand out to you because you were related to that person or are related to that person? Maybe it stood out to you because you know somebody that is related to that person or that youth. Was it because you connected to what the person was doing? Was it because of the person's age or generation? If you're someone who processes big picture as opposed to focusing in on smaller things, did you notice that all generations of our church family were represented? Did you view our church family as part of your family? Did you maybe notice that not one of those people, at least the ones that I brought up, now regularly attend our church? But that doesn't mean that they did not impact our church family, and it doesn't mean that, that, that they weren't impacted either. And we can see that as they live on with their life. Our sermon si- series is titled Generation to Generation, and the Bible has many, many stories about different families and about the generations and the lineage, but really the Bible is one story about a great big family, about God's family, about our family. So this sermon series explores how much of who we are is determined by our families and how we can do our part to move forward as a healthy family. Last week, Adam talked about Jesus' family of origin. He also talked about how um, we we have a choice. We have free will. We can choose to take all the good from our family of origin and move it forward with us, and we can choose to leave the bad behind. 
If you missed Adam's message, I suggest that you look it up. It's on our website. You can check that out. Today's message is about another family. It's about a family of brothers and how they reacted after their father's death. More specifically, it's about how Joseph shows his older and abusive brothers amazing grace. So the verse I'm going to read to you is that time when Joseph shows amazing grace. So it's taken from Genesis 50, 19 through 20. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. He reassured them and spoke kindly to them. Words of forgiveness, words of grace, all the more meaningful when given in context. So please let me do that. Last week, Adam mentioned family systems theory. And he said that um, he was a pastor, not a counselor. Well, I'm a counselor. I'm a licensed professional counselor. I'm also a pastor. Um, So if you go to a therapist who practices family systems therapy, the therapist will most likely have you create a genogram, basically your family tree, and then review the relationships between family members and the different things that happen there. Well, here's a part of a family tree that we're discussing today. As you can see, there is one dad and four moms, 12 sons and one daughter, Dinah. There's no law against having multiple wives, so that's not an issue here. And the family all live together as a family unit. However, just like today, you can probably imagine the number of interpersonal problems and difficulties they faced. Or better yet, you know what? You yourself can read about all the difficulties they faced in the book of Genesis. You can read about how Jacob was tricked into marrying his first wife, Leah, how he had to agree to work another seven years so he could marry the love of his life, who just happened to be the sister of Leah, Rachel. You can read about the competition between the sisters to have more children. Thus comes into play the maidservants, Zelpa and Bilhah. There's a lot of drama in the book of Genesis. Our focus today, however, is on the number 11 son, Joseph, and his interaction with his brothers. So here's a rough timeline of Joseph's life, including the highs and lows. Starting out, Jacob was honored and favored by his father. After all, he was the first child born to the love of his life. In fact, his father loved him so much, he gave him a special coat to demonstrate how much he loved him. The effect of Joseph's father showing favoritism is this. In Genesis 37.4, we read, when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them. They hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Now, if we're talking family systems here, we can't simply say, that father was bad and it's all the father's fault. Let's put the blame on the father because that's not how it works. We have to look at the interactions between all the family members. When we read Joseph's story, we read about how Joseph tells his brothers about dreams and these dreams involve his brothers. He tells his brothers that one day they're all going to bow down to him and he's going to rule over them. Think of your younger sibling, if you have one, telling you that. We might say that Joseph probably didn't demonstrate very high emotional intelligence at that time. So what is emotional intelligence? 
It's the ability to express and control emotions and, big and, the ability to understand, interpret, and respond to the emotions of others. Can you picture Joseph, this little brother, dancing around, wearing special clothes, staying home while his brothers go out in the fields and tend the flocks, and not once but twice telling them, well, I'm going to rule over you, huh? Not the greatest little brother to live with. So Joseph's brothers are also a part of this family dynamic. They treated Joseph with hatred and cruelty. In fact, they actually plot to kill him. Now that's some real brotherly hatred. As the story unfolds, it's, he, um, it's his own brothers that sell him into slavery. And then the brothers go and they lie to their parents. How would you like to be these parents? And they, the brothers tell their parents that their beloved Joseph, their son, is dead. So Joseph is no longer connected to his family of origin. He's sent away. He's alive, but he's sent away. So I'm going to go back and look at the slide of Joseph's life's ups and downs again. There we go. Um, So Joseph was 17 years old when he became a slave to Potiphar. And Potiphar was an Egyptian royal official, a man with power and wealth. Um, But you know what? God was with Joseph. And Joseph was faithful to God. And as a slave, Joseph rose among the slaves and was given a position of responsibility in Potiphar's esteemed house. So much so that he was able to go to the main house All went well until he was falsely accused by Potiphar's wife of sexual misconduct. The consequences? He was in prison, way back down. But even as a prisoner, he was well-respected and others came to see him for his wisdom and his advice and his interpretation of dreams. He he, um, gave of this freely. Unfortunately, the benefactors of that just took it. They didn't give back. They left him. Probably some of you know some takers, those that have the ability and the resources to give, to emotionally invest, but instead of doing that, they just take until you're no longer willing to give or have nothing left to give, and then they're on their way to find the next person. That's part of our world. So Joseph um, sat in prison knowing that he was abandoned by these people that said they would do good things for him, but... Eventually, Joseph was lifted out of prison and elevated to the position of prestige and power and prominence in the land of Egypt. That seems like a big jump. You have to read the story. (laughs) And um, I don't have time to do that. I ran long anyway. So it's in that position that Joseph directs the commissioners to store, store grain for seven good years, the commissioners of Egypt, all of Egypt. Seven good years of harvest, they stored the grain because he predicted that they that would be followed by seven years of famine, of no harvest. And so Joseph directed this, had this done, and it is during the time of famine that, I re- that those two verses that we read about Joseph giving forgiveness to his brothers, that's when that happened. So that's the setting. So some of us can identify with maybe one or more of the hardships that Joseph experienced. He was betrayed and deserted by his family, people that we assume will love us and care for us unconditionally. He was exposed to sexual temptation. He was punished for doing the right thing. He was also forgotten by those whom he helped. It would be really great if all of us 
could not just identify with that, but identify with Joseph's response to that. He didn't spend much time asking why. Why is this happening? Or pitying himself or throwing himself into a rage and causing damage. His approach was, what shall I do now? How do I move forward? And his positive response transformed each setback to a step forward. Joseph trusted in God's providence and God's faithfulness. I don't know about you, but there are so many times in Joseph's life that I would be so angry. And I don't doubt if my siblings did some of those things to me, I don't doubt that I might journey through life thinking that each bad thing that happened to me was set on path simply because my brothers decided to sell me into slavery. I would be so angry. I know in my head that I would probably plot how I'm going to get revenge, what I could say, what I could do. And that's a choice some of us make. Another choice is that we decide to be hardened and not feel any emotion at all and not be connected or allow people to connect with us. So is that what happened to Joseph? Did he become a hardened man so he just didn't feel at all? Was he that stoic? The scriptures tell us that is not true. Um, There are seven times in the Bible that it tells about Joseph weeping, crying. It's all in relation to his family, a family through all of this he continued to love. Those seven times, in case you're interested in fact-checking me, um, Genesis 42, he privately weeped, not in front of people, as he recognized his brothers when they first came to visit. So that was 20 years later. He recognized them. They did not recognize him. The next time was in Genesis 43. He privately weeped over seeing his youngest brother, Benjamin. In Genesis 45, he finally reveals himself to his brother, who he is. That's 20 years later, and he weeps at that time. Then he weeps again, not just over his brothers, but on his brothers, weeping them and weeping and embracing them. Later in um, chapter 45, he op- openly weeps when he finally gets to see his dad. And then over his dad's death. And lastly, when a messenger is sent about his brothers. You can check those out if you like. This appears to be a different Joseph than the youth that was proud and obnoxious and flaunted his privilege to his brothers. Through all the highs and lows of Joseph's life, he continued to have faith in God and God's intention for his life to be good. Through his faith, he was able to move forward without bitterness, without self-pity, and without blaming others. We have Joseph's life as an amazing example of how we're called to live. The thing is, we get to see Joseph's life in its entirety, recognizing that through every valley, And across every heel, one truth held. God was with him, and he intended it all for good. Because of everything that happened in Joseph's life, he was in the right place at the right time. He was where he should be. He had the right mindset. And the end result was that he saved an entire nation. He saved his family. Because of Joseph's faith in God and the way he behaved, it was Joseph's sons and his brothers who went on to become the leaders of the 12 tribes of Israel. Last week, Adam made reference to the biblical example of conflict resolution. The scripture most referred to regarding this topic is Matthew 18, 15 through 21. And 
I quickly summarized the, the steps presented. So you can read how it's in the Bible in Matthew 18, 15 through 21 if you wanna do that, but here's the steps of God's model. One, go alone and directly talk to the person. Number two, go with two or three others if the issue isn't resolved. Number three, take it to the church, and that's only when you're dealing with believers. And number four, break away from the relationship. Walk away. I like this model. So Adam talks a lot about strengths, and my number one strength is maximizer. So on the surface, this plan is right up my alley. It's succinct, it's efficient, and on the surface, and I wanna, rep, I wanna make sure I emphasize that, on the surface, I also have input and learner in my, so that works against the maximizer sometimes. But on the surface, this model gives me permission, no, it gives me direction that I can go to the person that I feel has wronged me, give my grievance, and if they don't see it my way, I get to include two other people. Come with me and tell this person this is what they've done. And then number three, oh, if they still don't see things my way, I'm gonna tell the whole church. And number four, if they still don't get it, you know, get what's right, then, oh well, I don't have to worry about them anymore. So, hmm, God's plan for conflict resolution. Again, context is important. God's word tells us that he expects several things from us with regards to approaching conflict. We don't get a, step, we don't get a skip to the steps. God expects us to always, always, I mean, it's kind of a given, interact with others with humility, with love, and with forgiveness. A good way to do that is first always involve God. So before even thinking about taking that first step, talk to God. Look up scripture on how we are supposed to relate to each other and then meditate on that scripture. If the conflict that you have is something that's covered in scripture, look that up. Meditate on that. And then pray some more. God commands us many times in the Bible to humble ourselves. Matthew 18.4 says, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And in Matthew 23.12, Jesus says, whoever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Part of being humble involves self-reflection. Are our intentions clean? Is there something that is causing me to have bad feelings towards this other person? Have I projected my own issues on this person and then assigned them the blame for my feelings? We're all responsible for our own feelings. Luke 6, 42, Jesus says this. How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take the speck out of your eye. When you yourself fail to see the plank in your own eye, whoops, how can you say to your brother, brother, let me take the speck out of your eye? when you yourself fail to see the plank in your own eye. You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. One of the things that we used to joke about when I was in counseling classes is, you spot it, you got it. So sometimes when you're seeing pride in somebody else, maybe we need to look inside. 
Maybe you've heard the um, saying, when you're pointing your finger at someone, there's other fingers pointing right back at you. Now, I do know that many times a conflict is one-sided. Perhaps you were wronged unjustly and did absolutely nothing to deserve it. That certainly happens. However, God still calls us to act with humility and self-reflection in times where we've been sinned against. Humility is a fruit of the Spirit. And true humility can be so difficult to offer. It's the opposite of pride, the desire to be right. Who doesn't want to be right? That unwavering confidence that the way I do things and the way I think is the right way. It's hard to not feel that way. And this shows up in a lot of different ways. It shows up in stubbornness, unwillingness to listen to others, not just listen, but hear others, lack of empathy for others, and even anger. Here's what the Bible says about anger. Ephesians 4:26. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. James 1, 19. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Life does not seem fair when we're in the valleys or someone we care about or a population we care about is also in the valley. But you know what? That's the human experience. Life has highs and lows. We do, however, have free will to react in whatever way we please. And I would like to say that I personally always act react with grace and forgiveness when I'm hurt, but that would be a lie. I can't say that. I'm working on it. The things that were done to Joseph by people um, who should have protected him and cared for him in my book are horrendous. I have no doubt that if I were Joseph, I would be so angry and may even act out in a way that is totally wrong. Joseph was in a position that he could have had his brothers put to death like that. He could have let them starve, but he didn't do that. There are times when we all react out of anger and then later regret our actions. Part of the reason we may do this is because we don't necessarily understand where that anger is coming from. This is a handout that is helpful when um, examining our anger. Anger is often referred to as a secondary emotion. Anger is not a singular experience, rather a group of feelings, um, a lot of things interacting with it, or it could be a learned response to a different feeling. When we become angry, it's because we first feel something else. It may be that you feel marginalized, hurt, disrespected, vulnerable, neglected, or any number of emotions, some of which are listed on the screen, anxiety, jealousy, embarrassment, worry, disappointment, guilt, fear, grief, or shame. So before we even start with step one, going to the person directly with our conflict resolution plan, we need to ask ourselves, are our intentions clean? Do our actions and words come from godly motives? Are we coming to that person humbly with the intent of offering forgiveness and healing? Are we willing to not just talk so our side can be heard? Are we willing to listen and hear what the other person has to say? Adam mentioned triangulation um, last week and that we want to avoid triangulation and that is absolutely true. Triangulation is when you have 
a problem with one person and you go and talk to the third person. Some people thrive being that third person. I do not. So, (laughs) however, I will say there are exceptions. Um, Sometimes the division is so deep between two people they can't find any middle ground. And when that happens, um, you can find a counselor or a mediator, a safe person. Um, And that is a type of triangulation, but it is a temporary triangulation. The third party is brought into the relationship to build a bridge between those two people or bridges between a family. The thing is that for the counseling to be effective, the couple or family members need to be willing to participate. They need to feel safe in the environment they're in. They need to feel safe with the counselor that's there. And everyone involved needs to understand the end goal. The end goal is healing, which starts with grace and forgiveness. Grace is one of those things that is hard to grasp. So often we equate, we equate forgiveness with a feeling or emotion. Oh, I feel good towards that person. But forgiveness, granting grace, is actually an act of will, and it's powered through the Holy Spirit. It's a choice. Sometimes, because, sometimes it's a choice because another person is never going to ask you. They don't want to and they're not going to. And it could be that that person is totally clueless that they've even done anything. So they're not going to ask for forgiveness. Granting forgiveness is your own choice. As Christians, it's required of us. God offers us forgiveness for every single sin that we have committed. Every single one. He sent his son to bridge that gap, that chasm between human imperfection and godly divinity. God holds, held nothing back and no sin is left out. He offers grace to freely cover each and every one of those. In Matthew 18, he commands us to do the same. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Back to Joseph's story. Joseph knew that he was a part of God's family. His dad was Jacob, whom God later named Israel. Jacob's father was Isaac, and Isaac's father was Abraham. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Those are the three patriarchs of the Bible. Those are family, God's family. And each one of those men had a responsibility to teach their children about God's faithfulness and God's promise. And that must have come down to Joseph because he stood on that solid ground. How do we see this legacy demonstrated in Joseph's story? Where do we see God's work in Joseph's life? We see unearned grace unearned. His brothers were horrible to him, but we see unearned grace and forgiveness. So I read to you once again with some context behind it. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. We see this grace that goes beyond generations. So then don't be afraid. 
I will provide for you and your children. He reassured them and spoke kindly to them. Joseph Joseph gave us an example to follow. It is how we approach each other with humility, love, forgiveness, and amazing grace. Amen.